0: The
1: Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me Richard Lee
0: and me Claire Armistead.
1: In this week's episode we talk to two writers from two different generations who have connected through their work. Johnny Pitts, who is a young photographer, musician and broadcaster, takes a canter through ten cities in seven European countries, not counting his starting point in his hometown of Sheffield, in his new book Afropian. Which looks at what it means to be a European of African heritage today. And Roger Robinson, who I think we can safely describe as an elder of the UK poetry scene, though perhaps more out of respect than any kind of indication of his age. Claire, how did he first come to your attention?
0: Well, he actually first came to my attention as the mentor of various younger poets I've met, including Inwa Ellams, who I'm very keen on, who's the author of Barbershop Chronicles, which was at the National Theatre, and more recently Half God of Rainfall. And Inwa talked about hanging out in bookshops with him and a couple of other older poets. Well, when I actually met him, he does have this fantastic authority and also a grizzled beard, but he is probably quite a lot younger than me. So, so it is it is, elder in the sense of being a sort of leader of people, really. He divides his time between Trinidad and the UK and describes himself as a dub poet, though he's been described by others as a master wordsmith and the voice of our communal consciousness.
1: So why did you think of bringing these two very different voices together?
0: Well, I, I just happened to be on a, at a festival with them. I was chairing them both at a festival. And they actually talk together so well. And It turns out that Johnny is... Another of those acolytes who had originally brought Roger to my attention. Um, So it just seemed like a bit of a dream pairing, as I think you will hear. So when they joined us here, we started with the most obvious connection in that Johnny had taken the photograph that graces the cover of Roger's new collection, A Portable Paradise. So I asked Roger how that came into being.
2: Oh, well, I was already friends with Johnny and we'd been in various places and I was already a fan of his photography and we went to do Afropians festival in belgium and we were just talking and i was looking at his pictures and like i want one of these pictures to be the cover of my book and when we was walking i casually slipped it in i'm like yeah johnny um can i have one of these pictures for the book please and you know we talked a little bit about like some historical british photographers because i considered this a british book um, and then he sent me a bunch of different stuff, and then this particular cover with a number of black men in cliché, yeah, right. just standing waiting, it just really, really moved me, like I felt weirdly weepy, it reminded me of generations, I must be getting old, it reminded me of generations of friends that I had just sitting, standing waiting doing something and I knew that was the one I wanted. I mean, let so me have
0: So Cliché is one of the venues one of the places you visit in this book isn't it Johnny?
2: It is yeah
3: and I think what's really interesting is obviously I knew Roger's poetry we'd led poetry workshops together and I've always been a, a big fan but um, I didn't know what this collection was going to be like but he told me that the title was A Portable Paradise mm. and it really reminded me of Hemingway's title A Movable Feast in Paris and what was interesting is Roger selected this photograph from a, a bunch that I sent him and I thought it was really nice because I talk about following the footsteps of Hem- Hemingway in Paris and this is the the Paris that we all want this is the the Paris that gets exported. And then this photograph is of Cliché-Sabois, which is part of a Paris that doesn't get exported, that isn't part of, Paris's, of France's national mythology. And so I really like this idea of this different story emerging, you know, and, and, and connecting it with for Roger's sure, poetry. Sure. Um, it, it was really powerful for me.
2: And, you know, when, John, when Johnny talks about, you know, I, I've seen Johnny talk a number of times, and one of the things he said that really stands out to me is that, you know, Europe... Does not export its blackness and people of color. It doesn't export it to other countries.
0: Unlike the U.S., you say.
2: Unlike the U.S. Yeah. And so, and and this book in particular, (laughs) we get all the connections. This book in particular is about fully rendering the lives of black people and people of colour, like a portable, but especially in England and some in, and some in the West Indies.
0: Right. So I want to now come back to you, Johnny, and ask you what you mean by African. What does that mean? Does that mean you, people of African descent or is it black people? Because I think your subtitle implies the latter.
3: Yeah, well, it's really, I use it as kind of a portal into a lived experience, one that is plural and embraces different allegiances, you know. So for me it was a way of talking about my identity that was I describe it in the book as being whole and unhyphenated, you know, on, on so many forms that I've had to fill in over the years. I've always had to tick, you know, something like black other or or mixed race or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. an Afropean was this portmanteau that just succinctly described something that really resonated with my experience. And so I think initially I was really using it to talk about new generation or third or fourth generation black people living in Europe who are too indelibly woven into the cultural fabric of Europe to deny it and for Europe to deny these black communities. And so afro felt like it really described this experience. As I was travelling, I realised that I couldn't use this term in an exclusive way. I couldn't just tell these sort of not necessarily success stories, but these comfortable stories of integration. I had to, the word became very complicated and it included people who, when I first set out, I might not have included in that notion of Afropian first-generation immigrants shunted out onto the hinterlands who were struggling, trying to take part in Europe and being denied.
0: And... It's quite interestingly complicated, isn't it? And we, we talked about Cliché and about France, we've, we've opened with. And you have a particular scene where you go around with black Americans and they're very shocked by what they see. And you find that actually they, they are what you would call racist.
3: Yeah, or certainly, yeah, there was xenophobia and prejudice there. A lot of, and I feel like I can say this because I have one foot Inside and one for outside of African America, because my father's born and raised in Brooklyn. I think there is a sort of American exceptionalism, especially in terms of the, this notion of, of of the Black diaspora. And I think what these people who were taking this tour with me wanted was stories of Josephine Baker and James Baldwin and Richard Wright, um, stories of these you know, success stories of African Americans who went to France and suddenly find that they were exalted, you know, and that they were, you know, James Baldwin and Josephine Baker won the Croix de Guerre, you know, the the highest honour that France can give. But then what they didn't want to see was an Afro-French reality of a black community you know, it wasn't glamorous necessarily. Their lives weren't glamorous, but they were a living, breathing community um, who who just were being forgotten about. And, and I think, you know, France glamorizes African American writers and intellectuals because there's no shared history there. So there's nothing to make them feel uncomfortable about any kind of colonial uh, misgivings, you know? So they can say, oh, you know, they're terrible over in America, all that prejudice. Come over to us, we're great, and come and take part in our intellectual life at the same time while, while they're sort of completely ignoring uh, the black communities that are living on their doorstep and a part of the French narrative.
0: Now a very, rather different picture emerges from Belgium which is of course a very close neighbour to France where they do have this terrible colonial history and um, which is particularly in the Congo which plays out today on, on the streets of Brussels.
3: Yeah for sure I mean you know the reason why Belgian chocolate is so famous is because of how they exploited the resources in the Congo. They got their raw cacao, they got all their ingredients for nothing and made this beautiful chocolate out of you know, out of these top class ingredients. So even even something like Belgian chocolate has colonial history. And I definitely found that in Brussels there was a sort of in Belgium in general, a sort of historical amnesia about colonialism, in a way that You know, for better or worse, in Britain and in France, there is an understanding and an acknowledgement that there was this colonial history. And some people are very proud of it. Some people are anxious about it. Some people are ashamed of it. But it's not a surprise. Whereas in Belgium, uh, I think that it does come as a surprise. People just don't want to talk about it, despite the fact that, you know, it's been reported that over 10 million Congolese were massacred under King Leopold II's reign. And you still feel that. This sort of disparity between the, the the black communities that are living in in Belgium, and then the white communities who are inheritors of this colonial wealth.
0: Um, and you talk about Tintin, who's of course everybody's hero, almost everybody's hero, and and having to come to terms with the fact that actually he's part of a racist setup.
3: Well, Tintin was interesting for me because genuinely, as a, as a kid, I read the books and I watched the cartoons, and it played a part in me wanting to be a writer in lots of ways. I wanted to be Tintin. I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to travel the world and go on these adventures and save people through my writing. (laughs) And, um, And I think, you know, people talk about decolonizing the mind. And I think what that's all about is the power structures implanted by colonialism are planted in the fertile soil of childhood. So for me, I was never questioning this white man who was always at the top of society and teaching other other cultures how to be. And so so for me white men were at the top and it's only as you get older and you have to kind of try and challenge that that, that you do have to confront colonialism and what I discovered in Brussels was that there was a, a Tintin story called Tintin in Congo where the Congolese community were reduced to gollywog characters. I mean it's such a racist Horrific volume of Tintin. It was was taken out of circulation for a while and then put back in, but with a sort of red banner saying this may cause offence. And it certainly does cause offence. And it was just this instance where, you know, I had to reevaluate my own relationship with Europe, you know. And it's one of many instances where you find yourself placed very quietly and subtly at the bottom of society.
0: Now, so part of what your book is, is a reckoning with old heroes, with sort of old culture. And Roger, in in your collection, you have a section which is largely devoted to your heroes who include people like Mark Rothko the painter, John Coltrane, Sade. What does does this mean for you? What do they mean for you?
2: Well, you know, a lot of the book at a certain point talks about people who either have not achieved paradise in their time but even though they may have done great things but they never died satisfied so somebody like Mark Rothko was amazing to me because he was so incredibly talented and so trying to do something that was interesting and special and he even tried to create the context around it but when he died he died bitterly unhappy you know and and so I find these types of things interesting and Sometimes how art deals with depression and how art deals with personality. So there's a section of um, different artists who have different varying mental states.
0: And it opens with a whole section on Grenfell. And you yeah. you um, most very publicly wrote an eight-minute poem which was set to music, which the BBC broadcasts yeah. about Grenfell. Yeah. This is, what was it that made you feel that you were the person to write so much about it? Well,
2: the thing about it is that when Grenfell happened, When I first came to this country, I lived in Tower Blocks. I lived in Gardner House. I lived in the Thatch Roof. I lived in cattle Road Estates. And when it was happening, I literally saw the people who I live with dying inside of it. Because Gardner House is no different from Grenfell. You know, good people who trying to find housing, oftentimes they just come into the country and they've come looking for paradise. And now that they've come here, what did they get? They got Grenfell, you know. And uh, me being an immigrant, trying to come here from Trinidad, trying to look for something better for myself, I was like, wow, to make that journey and to go like this was particularly moving to me.
0: Now, your um, background is actually un- not quite typical, isn't it? Because yeah. you were born in London, but yeah. then went... In immediately back to trinidad yeah, and only yeah, came yeah. back to england when you were in your late teens Is yes,
2: that yes right? yeah yes i, I left here when i was three and i came back when i was 19 due to the um system of opportunistic parents <laughs> trying to have you born at a certain time and they could take you back and come back because they always had a plan for you to go to university <laughs> you know and so that opportunity to do that so um, do you yeah.
0: consider yourself to be part of the r- windrush generation you're too young
2: no, I'm, no I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm too young for that, um, even though my beard might not make it seem so. But um, no, my grandmother was part of the, the Windrush. So my parents weren't part of the Windrush generation. My grandmother was part of the Windrush generation. And she always used to tell me things. She says, you know, Roger, when I first came here, a lot of people, a lot of working class people did not have shoes in winter. And I was like, what? You know, and so, like, the kind of observations that she saw, I was like, wow, okay. And she was in East London. You've
0: got a, a poem called Windrush, haven't you? Do you want to uh, read sure. it?
2: Windrush They came down from the ship on a footbridge of firewood Architectural pleats in their trousers and suitcases, each containing a live lizard Eventually, they'd put away their bow ties of cut banana leaves And take to drinking seawater shots down the pub with beds of black smoke On the weekend, they'd play bingo with passport pages And levitate at night to bass in the Mecca ballroom They eat their fried clay dumplings and salted sharks and Don Hats brimmed so sharp it could cut style, with their two-pence coin buttons, double-breasted jackets with pocket squares of betting slips. But still, the three wooden birds on their walls were flying back home in super slow motion, because nothing promised was what it seemed, but it was somehow more than what they left.
0: So that is sort of, in a way, something that you challenge in your book, Johnny, isn't it? You challenge this idea that black British people are, or black Europeans
3: are Windrush. Yeah, no, I don't know if. I want to go on record as having challenged that <laughs> at all actually especially during this uh, very charged era where, where, where the Windrush generation are really being undermined I suppose I wanted to broaden the conversation and so I wanted to include the Windrush story but also expand it and look at the various connections across the continent as well and not look over to America because I feel like it's an Anglophone thing perhaps but black communities I feel like in this country constantly are looking across the Atlantic to America rather than across the channel to Europe and it's funny with, with something like Grenfell, the Grenfell disaster. You know, in Europe, there are precedents, there are histories that the community who survived the Grenfell disaster can draw strength upon or at least acknowledge and get some sort of knowledge base from. If we look in t- at 1992 when an aeroplane crashed into a corner section of a high-rise flat in Amsterdam in the Belmer. Disaster uh, in the Belma district. Sorry, it was hard for people to know how many people died in this disaster because of illegal, undocumented, quote unquote, immigrants from Suriname. So you had all these, all the Surinamese community who would just uh, initially there was a, a a network of support. People thought it was horrible that this airplane had crashed into this high-rise flat and then as soon as people realized that it was undocumented immigrants that had died suddenly it be- mm. get, began to be reframed as a kind of villainy that what were they doing here and and and, and why should we support these people who aren't dutch and you know so uh, there is there are parallels there and i think it's really important that this country looks at europe and looks at the other black communities for a network of support mm-hmm.
2: and so also it's about how how do you value life You know what I'm saying? It's like, just because they might be from another country is a life of less value. Exactly. You know, just because they're undocumented is a life of less value, even more. You know what I'm saying? Uh, um, And even the people who live there weren't allowed to have the proper rights of home, you know, and how are you going to define home? And that's the important thing.
1: An urgent question indeed. Roger Robinson and Johnny Pitts will be back talking with Claire after this.
0: Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Rastana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen.
1: from concepts of home to concepts of hope. In this half of the Guardian Books podcast, we return to our conversation with poet Roger Robinson and photographer Johnny Pitts.
0: Yeah, I was interested by the fact that despite a lot of the subjects they cover being really rather bleak, and with good reason, of course, because all across Europe, the right-wing populists are taking over, people are getting more intolerant. But I think that in both their projects, there is an undercurrent of optimism or hope and I was interested in whether this was my imagination, my fond imagination, <laughs> my most fervent wishes, or whether this was actually true, because if it is true, it's true in a slightly backhanded way.
3: <laughs> I um, I use a sort of a phrase, it's a bit sort of a, of an oxymoron, but I, I describe what I found as a solid utopia. So it was this place of struggle and hope, of complexity, and and you know, it never really all fit together, and there were a lot of a lot of sad stories and troubling stories but then within that what I tried to do was tell the human story of black Europe so within that I, I think of someone who Roger will know really well and who is very formative probably for both of us I think of Samuel Selvon and his novel The Lonely Londoners which is perhaps the most important post-war novel uh, that captured the black experience and in that you know you see tragedy but you see the humour and humanity there's this Bit in that novel where one of the characters, uh, Sir Galahad, who has come to this country thinking he's gonna he's gonna kill it and he's gonna be rich, you know, when he gets to this country, and the reality is that you know he, he isn't, and he almost gets destroyed, and he has to he gets so hungry that he has to catch a pigeon to eat, and you know that's a tragic situation, but it's told with such humour because the, it is funny, you know, yeah, like the, sure. the reality of it is it's not just tragedy. Black lives aren't just tragic, uh, and and Samuel Selvon tells this story of, of, of Sir Galahad trying to catch this pigeon. to eat because he's so hungry but and and it becomes a bit of a farce you know and I feel like that's what I do with this book is I tell these stories but there is a lot of humour in this book I don't think this book is all tragedy I think actually I think there's there's a lot of hope it's a work of optimism it really is
0: so so now you've um, far be it from me to seem obsessed with France (laughs) you also visit
3: you also visit
0: Moscow and Stockholm and Lisbon and, and lots of other places but you did find a particular bit of optimism in the corner of the south of France didn't you
3: Yeah, I did. I think, you know, when when we travel for a long time, especially in our 20s, I think we're secretly looking for a home. And I certainly was. I I felt like I've always felt of and not of Britain, you know. And when I found Marseille, it was this place that I felt was just immediately felt like home. Yeah, in a way that Britain never has. Do
0: you want to read a bit?
3: Yeah, Okay. Okay. yeah, I will. When nationwide riots set France alight in 2005, one of the few big French cities to abstain from the violence and destruction was Marseille. This backed up Almami Canute's claim in Clichy that the Paris riots weren't in fact riots at all, but revolts because for the sons and daughters of Marseille's immigrants to firebomb this city would be to torture a place where their own families, businesses, and communities have been allowed to coexist with relative success for years. Marseille has its problems, of course, as it's a port town, drug dealers maintain a certain presence and old mafia families play a hand in controlling a corrupt local government, as I would see the Cartier-Nord houses deprived estates similar to those on the edges of other big French cities. But as soon as I left Saint-Charles station, I saw a working class, often brown-skinned men and women occupying the centre of the city with a self-assured poise that was largely missing not just in France, but across Europe. I'd heard mixed things about Marseille, mostly from Parisians, but hadn't ever experienced such a dramatically beautiful entrance to a city from a train station. Pigeons scattered out into the sunset, disturbed by kids kicking a football on this wonderfully balmy February evening. Their ethnicities mirroring the mix of their heroes in the French national football team. Against the burnt orange hue of the city, the players were all dressed in the complimentary colour wheel tone of sky blue ubiquitous in the city because it's the colour of Olympique de Marseille, the city's only major and dearly loved football team. I walked through their lively game which had nothing resembling goalposts and descended an ornate marble staircase with statues of African and Asian muses, lions, flowers, grain, fruit and wine, indicating that Marseille was both a land of abundant natural riches and also the old French gateway to Africa and the Orient. The staircase, first inaugurated in 1848, had been bruised by its life as a functioning part of the city and its faded stone, darkened in its crevices by pollution and covered in seagull poo, only made it more picturesque. It spilled onto a long drooping boulevard of pink limestone buildings set aflame by a low sun, a lava flow of brake lights and the inner glow of heaving Algerian and Tunisian cafes splaying out onto the sidewalks. In the distance, past this glowing labyrinth, lay the Mediterranean Sea, stirred gently by the throb of a full moon rising, and beyond its straits, the physical land of the Maghreb, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia. And it was clear straight away that Marseille itself housed much of that North African energy. Yes, Marseille is physically in Provence, but they say here that it turns its back on France to stare lovingly at Africa and the Mediterranean.
0: Oh, it's so lovely. Roger, that is poetry, is it not? Yeah,
2: for sure. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Capturing the moment.
0: (laughs) I want to just turn a little bit more to your collection, Portable Paradise. Mm -hmm. And this is your third collection of poetry, which I was astonished that this is only your third collection. But you've also done three albums and you describe yourself as a dub poet, as I said at the beginning. What is a dub poet and how does your performance relate to your poetry on the page?
2: Well, I would describe a dub poet as somebody who's being very aware of the music often thinks about the lives of the common man. I often try to narrate the lives of working-class people and well on the page I probably wouldn't describe myself as a dub poet but you know because I, I deal with regular poetic craft as, like anybody else but definitely in performance I take aesthetics of reggae from Jamaica, Calypso from Trinidad and try to make it an event. In terms of so
0: are there two U's
2: Yeah, there are two writers in you most definitely I mean there's there is the writer who writes and then there's the performer who tries to make it work live and so I sometimes the only only thing I would say about dub poetry in the actual book version of it would be trying to write about mostly about working class people class black people and people of colour
0: So, are there poems in this collection that come from that dub side of you? Yeah, for sure. Can you give us a a taste of what? Okay,
2: let me just find it because the book is super new. (laughs) Ashes to Fire. Beware these hot nights in Brixton when cabbies sit outside laughing on homemade stools and charge twice the going rate to get up. And crackheads walk with presidential purpose to meet wincing dealers whose crack floors rub against their fillings. And somewhere up in the tracing, paper squares of light in the tower blocks, grandmothers dice goat meat and season it with curry spice and sweat and a young man stops brushing his fade in the mirror and looks deep into the loose light brown threads of his own eyes whilst downstairs in the car park a young father whispers weed smoke about how life feels like that burnt out car that never moves the one with the shattered windows leaving diamond tears in the melting asphalt it's not too hot for bulletproof vests velcroed across the ribs, but it is too hot to sleep, so the whole town is out. The fat staffs are taking their hooded boys for a walk. Even the one-legged man is hopping down the center of the road begging traffic for revolution money. Out tonight, too, are certain mans who don't take three steps without looking backwards cause they know their boy who freestyles from his wheelchair let them peck a mans come up from behind with handguns, 45 long nose snubdos trying to slump man Roll, roll, watch, roll, roll, watch Even a bus driver will kick your ass tonight if you're trying to ride for free He's come up on road and tonight is too hot to take shit on hot nights like this, the pinpricks of sweats can make man's remember all beef that next man's forgot. And somebody might get caught slipping with none of his boys around and get bored up right there in the off-license, between the magazines and the special brew. And a nine-year-old girl's spine might take a stray bullet so she may never skip to a beat on concrete again. So beware, beware these hot nights in Brixton.
0: It's quite ominous, isn't it, that... Mm. And the ominousness is carried in the rhythm of, of the way you you speak it.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, you're trying to move like a film director, where you, you get in little snaps of things happening. And um, some of these sequences happen uh, like a build-up to the Brixton riots. So, you know, there's a certain tension in the air. And so I was trying to capture, OK, what is the what is actually the feeling that's going on here, mm-hmm. you know? And a lot of it was done through kind of observation, you know, observation and imagination. But you know, when you talk about taxi people, you know, waiting and charging twice to go and to get up.
3: Yeah, it's, it's funny because I I live in Peckham at the moment, although right. I am moving to Marseille soon. But okay. you know, that to me, it strikes me as a really contemporary portrait. You know, we're seeing some of the issues that are facing Peckham and and, and Brixton at the moment. And it's funny in, in the introduction you mentioned that myself and Roger from different generations and I suppose we are but I've never seen you like that Roger really because uh, your poetry to me is not uh, doesn't strike me as antiqued in any way it's it all seems very contemporary and I think that's probably because you are always looking I mean you're a lover of literature that's obvious in your poetry but you're also always looking at what's happening on the street so for me you're your your poetry. You don't. You are a veteran, but I don't see you as a veteran. I see oh, you as part, you, you know in lots of ways. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? I
2: appreciate that. Uh, thank you. Uh, don't let the great beard fool you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and all good collections have a shape, and this sure. this goes from the sort of public to the personal, yes. and you end up in the fifth section with with poems about your baby son, yes, which yes. are incredibly touching, and right. all the more touching. Because we know that there is a happy ending, yes. Although we don't know in we the poem, know, that yeah, there is yeah, a happy yeah, ending. Yeah. So I was just wondering, in the in the interests of having a happy ending to this podcast, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whether you could possibly read that.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I what, what I will say is that in writing the book Paradise, when my son was born, became a kind of hope, you know. So and um, began to represent that. And this section, this is the beginning of that section about hope for my son, Grace. That year we danced to the green bleep sunscreens. My son had come early, just the one kilogram of him all big head, bulging eyes and blue veins. On the ward I meet Grace, a Jamaican senior nurse who sang pop songs on her shift like they were hymns. Your son feisty, you see him just pulling off all the breathing masks. People spoke of her in half tones down these carbolic halls. Even doctors gave way to her when it comes to putting a line into my son's nylon thread of a vein. She'd warn junior doctors with trembling hands, May only letting you try twice. On her night shift, she pulls my son's incubator into her room, no matter the tangled confusions of wire and machine. When the consultant told my wife and I on morning rounds that he's not sure my son will live, and if he lives, he might never leave the hospital. She pulled us quickly aside, him have no right to say that, just raw so. Another consultant tells the nurses to stop feeding a baby who will soon die. And she commands her loyal nurses to feed him. No baby must dead with a hungry belly. And she sit in the dark, rocking that well-fed baby held to her bosom, slowly humming the melody of Happy by Pharrell. And I think if by some chance I'm not here, and my son's life should flicker, then grace, she should be the one.
0: Oh, you see, I'm all tearing up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's it's, it's a poem of joy and it's a poem of care. You know, so it, uh, sometimes I think about this poem being less about my son and more about how much somebody could care for somebody else's life.
0: And in, and that is something that both of of the, you have in common in your writing is it's about finding the general in the particular, isn't it? Yeah. You, you're observing very. She's a very particular person, Grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And likewise, the people that you meet on your travels, Johnny, are very particular.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think, actually, both Roger and I take part in a tradition uh, that found form, actually, in, in the African-American tradition. It's of praising the concrete rose, praising a road that grows through a crack in the sidewalk. So we can hear it in Benny King's Rose in Spanish Harlem and Aretha Franklin's A Rose is Still a Rose and Tupac Shakur's poem The Concrete Rose. And it, it, it asks us... Uh, even if uh, if the of stems and petals are sort of like not imperfect, the fact that they managed to grow out of this desperate situation or out of this unusual situation is something that we should all really praise. And I think that's something that I've seen Roger's poetry, and it's yeah. certainly something that exists in my book. It's, yeah. it's trying to look at culture and that is surrounded by
2: perhaps a lot of negativity, but still grows and thrives. And you know, with, you know, you ask, what's the happy ending? The happy ending is that like, you know someone like Johnny will travel and see all these lives of black people and people of color and render in such fine detail that people will be moved and understand these people live and they're here, you know? And I think that to some extent, that's the good part. I did a workshop uh, with some middle-class white women, and I read it to them and some of the poems, they said they were profoundly changed by it. And they were ready to make action. And I think that's the job of writers, to really appeal to the emotions of people and try to get them into action or for them to and to have some empathy with something that they may not have so known before. So to change
0: before. their thinking in a way that can make change. And that's, the happy,
1: that's the happy ending, mm. you know. What about a happy ending for Roger Robinson's son? Was he OK?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the great thing about it. He's now five years old and was going off kickboxing. I think Roger was going to whisk himself back to Northampton where he lives to take his son out. <laughs>
1: Marvellous. I'm very, very pleased to hear it. That was Roger Robinson and Johnny Pitts talking to Claire. Portable Paradise is with Tree Press and Afropean is with Alan Lane. Both are out now. Next week, Howard Jacobson joins us to talk about finding love in your later years with his latest novel, Live a Little.
0: And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And of course, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.
1: But for now, from me, Richard Lee.
0: And me, Claire Armistead.
1: And from our producer, Susanna Trezillian.
0: For for the the last last time. time, Not forever, but for now. For now. Because she's going off to have her own happy ending. A baby.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening.
0: And goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.